We read a remarkable story in the uh, Fairfax papers last week about the dangers of mining for gold in Ghana. The story of an Australian mine, a pre-existing Chinese mine right next door, and accusations of corruption, theft, smuggling and murder. To fill us in on the backstory to the article on what it says about, well, the current situation of mining in Africa, we warmly welcome its authors. Eric Bagshaw is the North Asia correspondent for the Fairfax Papers and Edward Ardetti is a journalist with The Fourth Estate, an online news website in Ghana. First to you, Eric, I'm aware that Ghana has inflation running at 30%, has been really badly hit by COVID, and uh, I understand that English is the official language, but I don't know the population. There's 32 million people in Ghana, uh, each trying to make their own way, and as you said, deal with many of the myriad problems that exist uh, today in modern Africa. But I dare say um, some of the mining that we discuss in our story and some of the other issues aren't making those issues any better. Now, so it's about the same population as Australia. How did you first come across the story, Eric? I got an email from uh, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Head. Uh, Andrew had just returned from Ghana where he was a, a mining manager for an Australian company called Cassius. And he said that he'd been to Ghana, he'd been to send several years there, and he'd just returned home. And what he'd witnessed there was uh, theft, uh, allegations of murder, uh, allegations of trespass, and uh, an extraordinary story involving an Australian and a Chinese mine. And he didn't tell me all this in the email, he just sort of hinted at it. And I said to him, look, what you're telling me sounds incredible um, uh, and very distressing, but let's meet up in person for coffee. Uh, and so we did in Canberra. Edward, you live near the mine in Ghana. Can you describe that part of the country where the story unfolds? Describe it for me. Thank you, Philip. Uh, the area is called Talency. It is a district in the Upper East region. And the Upper East region is one of the 16 regions, you know, in Ghana. And uh, this very area has a lot of people who live there. And mining is uh, the mainstay of the, the local economy of, the, of that community. And... Uh, well, people also do a lot of farming activities in the area. And uh, yes, a lot of you know, gold is being mined uh, in this very district. And it's been so since uh, around the middle of 1990, when a former president in Ghana is dead now, he's called uh, Jerry John Rawlings. He you know, uh, demarcated the area for small-scale mining. And so since then, uh, mining activities have started and, it, uh, you know, uh, people do small-scale mining. But uh, you do not see, it's difficult to find the, the gold being mined reflecting on the face of the community. You don't see it reflecting the lives of the people who live there. A lot of people are poor. And uh, I can tell you, Phillips, that when you enter the area, you will not find more than one third road more than one third road. There are a lot of roads in the community, but only one road is third. So a lot of mining is, is being done, but you do you cannot see it on the lives of the people. 
Edward, is there much education available for the kids? No. Well, there are schools there, business schools, and uh, also uh, second cycle institutions can be found there. But uh, it is so pathetic, You, I mean, to find a lot of the students um, sitting on bare floor to learn. They stretch on their bellies to write and to read. Many of the schools do not have furniture. Basic things, basic things they need to have a good education are lacking, are lacking in the district. And so it's one of the things I just said. You don't see, you know, the, the, the mineral resources that are in abundance in the district reflecting the way people live. Eric, can you explain how the Chinese-owned mine managed to nick gold by undermining the Australian-owned mine? Well, these two mines were basically situated, um, you know, within a hundred or so meters of each other at their closest points. That's their concessions, which is kind of the land you're allowed to mine. And the Chinese mine decided uh, that it would send down um, uh, shafts into the earth and then burrow across uh, at a depth of about 150 meters or so, hundreds of meters inside the Australian concession. We've got what's called a, a geo-slam laser, which is actually, actually developed by the, um, by the CSIRO, and it shows underground subterranean tunnels and where they've been dug. And these tunnels were so big that they could, in fact, fit, fit vehicles in them. Uh, so what we saw in those mines and what an independent report later found was that um, gold had been removed from the veins inside the Australian concession, and those veins had been accessed through the tunnels that the Chinese miner Shanxi had dug. Eric, I understand that uh, air vents near the Australian concession gave a broad hint about what was going on beneath them. That's right. Basically, the air vents became sort of getting closer and closer, and that's that's the air vents to the shafts as well. Um, Likewise, what they were seeing when they were under there were blocked passages uh, and, and, and obstacles and very, very um, sensitive behaviour, I guess, by some of the Chinese miners. And eventually, uh, Andrew Head, uh, who worked for Cassius, he at one stage was allowed to go down into the mine and actually managed to lose his Chinese minders in the darkness. They switched off all their lights, ran back through the mine, popped out through a hole only to find this huge drive uh, for underground vehicles, uh, which later led them to conclude that the Chinese mine had not just spent months, you know, basically pinching gold from the Australian concession, but probably years. So Cassius realised what's going on and decided to sue the Chinese for, what, tens of millions of dollars? Well, that's right, and and that that action, because of the nature of um, of Ghanaian uh, just judicial system, and perhaps Eddie can talk more about that, has really gone nowhere because there have been delays, claims of corruption, including what involving a key judge, the act um, ability to get legal um, restitution in Ghana is is difficult, and that has led now Cassius to take the Ghanaian government to the London International Court of Arbitration for $395 million because essentially they argue that the uh, the Ghanaian government allowed for this trespass and for this theft to occur. Back to you, Edward, and tell us about the, well, the goings-on in regard to the judicial 
authorities because uh, there was a lot of things happening behind the scenes. What did you find out? Well, uh, uh, Phillips, uh, well, uh, a lot of uh, Ghanaians uh, have lost confidence in the judicial system in the country and for many reasons. So I'll only cite uh, the reason that has to do with the case between Cassius and the uh, Chinese-owned Shanzi. Uh, that was, um, you know, uh, it, it started when I had, you know, I, I became so distressed, you know, with uh, the complaints people were given in Ghana about uh, the fact that people had lost confidence in the judicial system. So I decided to, you know, uh, go into uh, some cases uh, at the courts in the Upper East region uh, to see whether I could ascertain what people had been saying. So one of the cases I picked up was the case between uh, Cassius and Shanzi, and that was in 2018. Uh, so uh, I was like, okay, uh, well, I've, I'd, he I'd heard that uh, people used to go to the houses of judges to, you know, people who had cases before judges would go to the residence of judges to see how they could, you know, a bargain, you know, how they could get justice to their side. So I decided to you know, uh, uh, monitor the residence of the judge who was sitting on the case between Cassius and Shanzi. Well, and as, as, a result, as a result of your efforts, the judge had to recuse himself and the mining minister was also forced to resign. Yes, well, well the minister who resigned was not in charge of mining. He was a minister of state at the presidency in, in Ghana the time. But before then, he was the regional minister for Upper East. And uh, uh, as he told me when I was investigating the, the, the matter, he said he and some you know, government officials had been supporting Shanzi and, and said I should not publish the story, you know, the investigative story had, I was going to you know, make public and that, well, uh, he would uh, arrange for some money for me just to kill the story. So subsequently, he sent 5,000 Ghana cities. Uh, that should be, I mean, around, uh, I don't know how to convert it in dollars now, but it should be somewhere, let's say, uh, uh, maybe 600 or $700 or so for now. So he, they actually brought the money and the, the judge recused himself after the story, you know, what was done. So on the one hand, Edward, you're offered bribes. On the other, you're threatened with your life. Yes, that happened. You know, after, you know, I received those items they brought in, you know, in bribery uh, for evidential uh, was in purposes. So I took the items to uh, a state intelligence agency because I knew I was going to come up with a story. Then after the story was done, then I... I had to flee from my residence. My family had to relocate, how to go elsewhere. I left the region for the national capital, you know, hiding somewhere. Because uh, thankfully, I was not at home when the faceless people came to uh, where I live in the Upper East region. So they broke into the, the house, uh, ransacked everywhere. Uh, I was just on my way from a, a program when I heard that uh, there was something happening in the house. So... From there, I just left, on, just on my way, I had to divert my direction, uh, change my direction to Accra. So, well, that's what really happened. I went through threats 
after the story was done. Eric, tell me about the deaths of many miners in the Shanksky mine, including that incident in 2019. Well, there's been about 61 miners uh, inside Shanksky's mines since really it started operations, mostly since 2013, 2014. And a large portion of them are related to explosions and poisonous gases being let off in the mine, inside the mine. What happens is in that area in Talensi is local unlicensed miners, uh, they're called Galamsi, will go down into the, um, the Chinese mine and sort of try and pilfer a bit of, bit of gold from the walls. And it's one of those things that's been happening forever because essentially these large Chinese state-linked mines and other international operators are coming in, setting up these, res- these companies, taking the gold and, and the community is left short. So it's kind of been tolerated that that does occur because otherwise these people have nothing. But slowly, it seems that Shanxi was getting more and more um, frustrated, perhaps, at some of the actions of these illegal miners. And it, at different points, uh, explosions have gone off, whether by accident or as a warning signal. But in 2019, what happened was uh, the, there was at least 16 miners down at once. Explosions went off at a uh, completely unannounced undeclared time. There was no warning. These miners were trapped inside the mine, um, gasping for air because what had happened, according to witnesses, was that the explosion had mixed with chlorine, creating a poisonous gas. That meant that when the miners emerged from the holes, they were frothing from the mouth. Uh, Most of them would die within hours. Some took up to 10 days. Uh, And these families, uh, and as Eddie can, can tell you more, they have been fighting for years for compensation or for someone from Shanxi to come and talk to them, and they've not heard a peep. Now, Eric, uh, mining in Ghana is an old-time profession. It's been going on since the 14th century, and that part of Africa I learned from you was known as the Gold Coast. The amount of money officially exported is immense. It's almost $9 billion in 2019. It is, it is, and but if only it matched the amount that was that appears to have been uh, either hidden or stolen. Nine billion dollars uh, in 2019, but 12.8 billion dollars was not accounted for. So it gives you a scale of the potential theft. I mean, an industrial, huge scale of uh, potential, yeah, uh, taking of gold from these local mines uh, in what is Africa's largest gold-producing country. Now, let's zoom out and take the wider view. Clearly, Ghana and uh, similar countries need to negotiate better with international mining companies to ensure they're they're not getting ripped off. Is that possible? It's tricky, and that is because something, you know, like mining requires huge-scale investment and requires big players to, to want to come in and, and, and put the money and the resources into these projects. Now, what tends to happen is that China, as a big single country run by a single government, comes in and negotiates with a smaller country, let's say it's Ghana or let's say it's Egypt or Equatorial Guinea, you know, and what they will do is pick off individual countries one by one. And because China is the larger bargaining power, it has very significant leverage over those governments and over those businesses. What 
people that I've spoken to in Africa have, have really pushed for is that Africa needs to get better at multilateral negotiations and get better at almost EU-style operations where all of the governments can come together and have a, have a united negotiating position because that gives them strength in numbers. At this point, they really are struggling in terms of the parity of negotiations. And we're not just talking gold, we're talking minerals like lithium and cobalt. Absolutely, Africa has the potential to be a huge renewable resources powerhouse. You know, those things, lithium, cobalt, for example, key ingredients in electric batteries. Uh, and as long as there is interest, particularly as uh, other countries try to diversify away from China and try and diversify away from Chinese processing, China's very good at processing materials, doesn't have a huge amount itself, but in Africa there are very large deposits, then it really is bargaining position is a lot stronger, but it needs to get a bit smarter about how it, how it does that. And that, of course that's very difficult when you don't always have rule of law, you don't always have a, an effective judicial system, and you often have corruption. Uh, so all those things, you know, uh, go hand in hand. Edward, uh, so many families have been destroyed by what's been going on, and I know you shed tears talking to them. Has the international coverage that that you and Eric have helped uh, create, is this having an impact in Ghana? Yes, it has, you know, uh, brought a lot of relief uh, to a lot of people. I can say that until now, uh, those who have been crying for fairness, those who have been crying for justice, have not had their voices heard outside the shores of Ghana. But ever since uh, the blog was published or came up, uh, people have been happy. They have been showing, you know, the appreciation to uh, the media houses, houses that, you know, uh, came up with the, with a story. And uh, when you go to the community now, you can find people really expressing their joy. And many people who were along the way getting discouraged because they felt uh, their cause was going nowhere, their struggles were going nowhere, their fight was going nowhere, now have a renewed sense of uh, hope that uh, which their voices are being heard outside the shores of the country, uh, they, they will overcome the challenges they've been you know, facing for many years now. Congratulations to both of you. Eric Bagshaw, North Asia correspondent for the Fairfax Papers, and Edward Ardetti, a journalist with the Fourth Estate, an online news website in Ghana, and we will put up a link to their wonderful, wonderful articles on the story on the website. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.